I love pastoring. I uh, really can't think of anything I would have rather have given my life to than pastoring. One of the most interesting and probably fulfilling part of pastoring is you get to deal with a whole wide spectrum of people's lives and challenges and problems. There have been weeks when I have conducted three funerals. I've had a Saturday or two where I've done three weddings and that'll test you. I've been in hospitals shortly after little ones have entered the world. I've been in hospital rooms where the one who was born was not healthy and only lived a few hours. And we found ourselves at a graveside a few days later as dad and mom are weeping carrying a little one in a box the size of a shoebox. Somehow, and I, and I could tell a lot more stories, but somehow when you've seen some tremendous highs in people's lives, And then you've also had to walk with people through some really dark and difficult times. The answers you once thought you had all figured out don't quite come as quickly anymore. And tonight, we're looking at a book and a story uh, of a man named Job. And what an epic, vivid illustration of the great times of life and the difficult, difficult, difficult times. Let's pray and just ask the Lord to help us as we dig into this story. Father, um, we've got some stuff to learn tonight, but it is way beyond my capacity to uh, explain or make real. So would you come Holy Spirit now Come, Holy Spirit, now and instruct and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Quite the, uh, quite the life here, Book of Job. Some call it the Book of Job. If you're looking for a job, uh, don't go here. Uh, this is the book of Job. 
And uh, it's really recorded in three parts. This is a really, really well-written story. This is a really uh, great, great story. And it begins, it has, it begins with a prologue. Prologue is just an introduction, and the first two chapters are the prologue. And then it ends with the epilogue, kind of the conclusion. The writer is putting the story together. And between the prologue and the epilogue, in the middle, for about 39 chapters, is a whole lot of monologue and dialogue. And uh, I can't, in one 30, 35-minute sermon, cover everything, but I do want to give you a quick sense of, of what's happening uh, in this book. It's a book full of questions. Book of Job has 330 questions in it, 330 questions. And uh, full of them, full of them. More than any other book in the Bible, 330 questions. Um, so this book, well-written book full of questions, let's dive right into it and get into the prologue. Job chapter one and verse number one. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was a man. There was a man. And this man lived in the land of us. Where is us? Well, a Baptist church in the United States went to the trouble of showing us where us is on the map. You can see Jerusalem there. It's kind of south and east of Jerusalem. It uh, is uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. It's north of the Red Sea. It's east of Egypt. Uh, that's the land of us. There was a man from the land of us. And verse number one tells us that that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Verse number seven tells us that God described him, verse number eight, sorry, tells us that God described him as a man who was blameless and upright, and there was no one like him on the earth. This was an outstanding man, blameless, upright, one who feared God, one who turned away from evil, and God looks at him and says, there's no one in the whole world quite like Job, no one. 
Quite a man. Quite a man. We learn from study that he, this book, Job, is probably one of the earliest books written in all of Scripture. Uh, it's written in the time of the patriarchs. So it's this time back, and if you're going back the map, we won't, but it's in this time of Abraham and Jacob, uh, the time of the patriarchs. How do, you, how do you know it's in the time of the patriarchs? Well, there's a whole lot of clues, but the Jewish rabbis pass it on to us for, for a starting point. But one of the hints that it's in the time of patriarchs is look at verse number three of Job chapter one. How did they measure wealth? Well, they measured wealth the way the patriarchs measured wealth. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. That's how they measured wealth in the time of the patriarchs. You get to the end of the book, and it's past this stage where people are living ridiculously long lives. They're not living 700, 800, 900 years. You get to the end of the book, and Job lived a good life, but it was 140 years, the same kind of timelines as in the time of the patriarchs. The other part of this book that indicates it's patriarch time is there's not an entire reference to the law of Moses in here. Why is Moses not meant in a, re, mentioned in a, in a book that is deeply spiritual and deeply concerned about God and his ways? Why? Because the law of Moses didn't exist yet. This is a book from the time of patriarchs, very very early in the scripture story. And some of us tend to, because they put it in right in the Bible, right before David, we think this is kind of King David stuff. But it's really right at the beginning of history that we're reading here. And the prologue, chapters one and two, has three characters in it. Three main characters in the prologue are Job. Job was a wealthy man. We already read the list. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. What would you do with 3,000 camels? 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, uh, described as the greatest person in, in all of the East, Job. Job. And interestingly, uh, married, 10 children, seven sons, three daughters. And they would have birthday parties. Uh, that's what's likely referred to honoring people's day of birth in, in verses uh, four and five. Uh, first number four, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on, on his day. So when his day came, his birthday came, we went to our youngest grandson's house last night. It was his day. It was his birthday. On his day, on the his day of the various sons, they'd go to dad's for a birthday party. 
And when it was all over, this is a godly man. This is a man deeply consecrated to God. When it's all over, in verse number five, it says uh, Job would offer burnt offerings when his kids finally left. He said, it may be that my children have sinned while they're here and cursed God in their hearts. I gotta look. Job was a intensely spiritual, godly man. And so the first person in this story is, is Job, and he appears to be, have a perfect, successful, godly family. And the second person in this story, in verses, chapters one and two, in the prologue, is Satan. Satan's not a name, Satan is a, a title, uh, the opposer the one who is against. And Satan is in the story, and God says to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, I, I have come from wandering around the earth. You see, Satan has nowhere to live. He's homeless, he wanders, wanders. And interestingly, after chapter two, Satan completely disappears. <laughs> he's not in the story anymore. But he's here at the beginning. He's here at the beginning, and I'll tell you why I think he leaves a little later, so keep listening. We've got Job, we've got Satan, and then we've got God. Some would say this book is about the problem of pain. I don't think this book is about the problem of pain. I think this book is really about the problem of God. <laughs> the problem of God. This book is a problem for us because God is in it. This book is a problem for us because God is in the story. And Job, wealthy, the perfect family, a deeply godly man, things are gonna turn for him pretty quick here. And God's in the middle of it. Problem of pain, I think it's really the problem of God. Lots of questions in this book, 330 questions. One of the words that comes up the most is why? Why? Why me? Why this suffering? Why now? Why, if you're God's, our God of love, do things like this happen? Why, if you're sovereign, why don't you just put your foot down and stop all of it? Problem of, of God. And Job's life here, Job's life, forces us to deal with these questions. So the challenge in the prologue is we're dealing with the natural realm. 
And in the natural realm, Job seems to, uh, things just seem to be going so good. He's got a wife, he's got 10 kids, seven sons, three daughters, too many camels to count, although I guess somebody did count them. He's got servants. There's the realm of the physical. And then we've got in the background, and incidentally, Job doesn't know any of this background stuff. This is just information for us to understand the book. There's Satan. So there's the reality of a physical world and there's the reality of the spiritual world. And we heard Ryan's story tonight and how he got entangled in the ugly part of the, of the spiritual world and what a, what a mess it made when he opened his heart to Satan. We're introduced here to the conflict between the natural realm and the spiritual realm. And most of us, at least those of us who, who are thinking, find this to be a little bit problematic. We're, uh, we're okay with the ungodly having hard times and difficulties. As a matter of fact, some of us would say, uh, serves them right, living that ungodly life. They deserve it. They deserve what they're getting. We don't have all that much trouble with the ungodly experiencing loss and disappointment, but the godly, that's not supposed to happen. Godly people are supposed to always be protected. Nothing terrible will ever befall them. God is good all the time. God is good. And uh, we have a great deal of trouble figuring out what to do when life doesn't seem to be <laughs> delivering the way we think God should and life isn't going, <laughs> going good. And so Job is the greatest man in all the earth. That just means he's, he's got the biggest operation going. There's nobody with more prestige and more stuff than Job. And then the wind of destruction begins to blow. And in one day, the story is wiped or that one day this story sees everything Job had just wiped out, floor torn out from underneath him. We read this in Job chapter one, verses nine to 11. 
You see, Satan had come. And he answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for naught? Now, interestingly here, notice that uh, Satan comes with the heavenly uh, principalities, the powers of heaven, the heavenly beings. Satan used to hang out with them. He shows up and he has to answer to the Lord here. And uh, God had said to him, this is, this is difficult for us, friends. God had said to him, have you noticed my servant Job? No indication that Satan had ever noticed him before. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But you, God, you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you. He'll curse you to your face. Satan thinks he's got human nature figured out pretty good. He thinks we love God because he gives us a bunch of nice things. Satan says, <laughs> I bet you if you don't give them those good things, they'll stop loving you. They'll curse you. And to me, that's really the foundation of this book. Do we love God? Do we love God because of who he is? Or because he uh, gives us camels and oxen? Promotions at work and lots of GICs. Do we love the giver? Or have we just fallen in love with all the gifts he gives us? Are we pursuing intimacy with the giver? Or are we just wanting him to keep on piling a bunch of stuff that we can brag about and live real comfortable down here. So Job is challenged and the enemy is allowed to attack him. And in Verses 13 to 20, we read about it. They're having another party. This one's at their oldest brother's house, and the oxen are plowing, and the donkeys are feeding. The wind blows, and the house falls down. Fire of God falls from heaven, and the sheep and the servants are consumed. 
Chaldeans formed three groups and raid his 3,000 camels. And what does Job say? Job 1.21. It's got nothing left. It says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's upright. Job is blameless. Job is godly. He doesn't love God because of everything he has given him. He says, I came into this world with nothing. I'm gonna leave with nothing. I got nothing in the middle, so what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Starts off real good. You know, it's, it's uh, easy to start well. It's easy to start well. The challenge is to keep our hearts in the right place. And the story goes on, and chapter three, we begin the, uh, the monologue. His wife has in chapter two uh, said to him that he should just curse God and die. And uh, he uh, doesn't want anything to do with his wife's advice. He says to her, verse 10, don't recommend you use this language, man. You speak as a foolish one. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Job's thinking straight. And then his friends show up. And we move into the dialogue and monologue in chapter three. When his friends show up, verse 13, chapter two, they sit with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. They saw that he was suffering greatly. This is the only time his friends get it right. The most important things to do when people are suffering, friends, is just be there. Just be there. So when we start speaking, <laughs> sometimes we get into trouble. Things are going good. And then chapter three, the, the talking starts. It's easy to start right, it's hard to keep focused. In verse number one of chapter three, Job opens his mouth and he curses the day he was born. Wish I had never, ever been born. So there's this mental anguish now taking over Job's life. Wish I'd never been born. 
And then somewhere in all of this monologue and dialogue, he begins to get things a bit straighter, Job chapter 13 and uh, verse number 15. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Don and I had been married seven or eight years, can't really remember. And it was our habit at that time to make our way to Montreal every single summer. That's where her parents lived, her sisters lived there, her brother lived there, so we made the long trip to Montreal. But a day before we were going to leave, the phone rang, and Donna's uh, maternal grandma had passed away. We said, can you, can, you, can you hold the funeral till we get there? We drove as hard as we could to get to Montreal. Her grandma was buried. We had already booked a trip to Newfoundland. It was too late to change it, too costly to uh, change it. So a few days after the funeral, we made our way to Newfoundland. We were there a couple of days. And uh, we got a phone call in Newfoundland. Mom and Dad, Donna's parents, were on their way to church on Sunday morning. And they were involved in a head-on collision. And Mom was laying in a hospital bed, not sure if she was going to make it or not, in a coma. We got back to Montreal as quick as we could. And we were staying in uh, Grandma and Dad's house. Mom was still in the hospital. And Grandpa sat, Dad sat in his rocking chair. And over and over again he said, You always slay me, yet will I trust him. Always slay me, yet will I trust him. (laughs) Always slay me, yet will I trust him. Job's going on a ride here. (laughs) One minute he's cursing God and gets to the point where he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Chapter 13, verse 18. Uh, We read these words. This is of the New International Version. Now that I've prepared my case, I know I'll be vindicated. God's going to look me out, look after me here. I'm going to be vindicated. And you keep reading chapter 16, 17 to 19. God has worn me out. He's made me desolate. All my companies shriveled me up. His witness is against me. My leanness has risen up to testify against me. It testifies to my face. When I look in the mirror, I look terrible. He's torn me in his wrath, and he's hated me. He's gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me, too. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Then you get to chapter 19, 
in verses 23 to 27, and he declares, I know that my Redeemer lives. Friends, when you're going through suffering, <laughs> there's a lot of mental anguish that accompanies it. And as strong as sometimes we believe we are, we still ride the roller coaster. Moments of great spiritual confidence and times of deep, deep struggling. I don't have time to explore all the mental anxiety and instability and ups and downs here. I gotta get you. I gotta get you to the epilogue. Four quick points. Lessons from the epilogue. Number one, Job's perspective does get restored. Job's perspective does get restored. This is what he says when it's all said and done. Job chapter 42. Uh, verses two to six. I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent and dust and ashes, and Job says, I, I, I'm getting it again. I'm seeing things clearly. I'm honoring you as the God who does all things, and I recognize your purposes cannot be thwarted. Job's perspective comes back. Secondly, the life of faith must acknowledge some things cannot be explained. The life of faith acknowledges that some things cannot be explained. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, we have to get to the point where we realize some things just cannot be explained. And one of the things that cannot be explained is why good people Godly people. People like so many of you in this auditorium tonight go through dark, dark valleys in deep, deep pain. Our faith requires us to lean into God and keep our eyes on Jesus. Did you catch that phrase? 
that Job said, my ears heard about you, but now my eyes understand. We need a light bulb to go off inside of our hearts that says, God, I, I don't get this, but I do get that you're in charge. And my confidence remains in you no matter what is going on. February 6th, 1870, George Mueller's wife Mary died of rheumatoid fever. They'd been married 37 years. He found the strength to do his wife's funeral, memorial service. And he said, I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand that thus has afflicted me. I'm gonna love you, Lord, no matter what's going on. I, uh, I may have lost things that are very precious to me, but I'm not serving you because of the things you give me. I'm serving you because you're sovereign God. I put my trust in you, even when I don't understand what's going on. Third point. God will vindicate. God will vindicate you when you're judged and misunderstood. Job 42, 7, Job had said in one of his up and down moods, Job had said, I, I know God will vindicate me. We read the verse. And at the end of the story, the Lord speaks these words to Job. The Lord said to the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has, God comes and God vindicates Job. Began my ministry as my father's associate, and there was a point as I was serving in my first four years of ministry that there were a couple of people in the church who were driving me absolutely nuts. They had decided they didn't like me, can you imagine? And my dad said this to me, and it's carried me through the last 43, 45, four years. Dad said to me, John, never vindicate yourself. Never vindicate yourself. I've tried to live that way. God comes and God vindicates. Job. And then I love the end of the story. In the end, point number four, in the end, all things are restored. Job 42, first half of, of verse number 10 says this, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Uh, first half of verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Friends, I think one of the problems we have with suffering 
is we don't understand. We don't really understand that we have eternal life. And in the end, friends, it's going to be worth it all. What a day that'll be when my Jesus we shall see. Any suffering here is small. Any suffering here is temporary. Don't get your eyes on the stuff and accumulation of stuff, loss of stuff. You make the priority of your life loving him. And if your eyes are on him, the storms of life get so much more easy to endure. Lessons from the story of Job.